Well, it is great to see you back tonight, and this evening we are beginning the first of our topics in our worldview series. A couple of weeks ago, we addressed the importance of worldview, and tonight we are going to take the principles that we began to work out, and we are going to work those through a topic that is confronting and challenging Christians today. This evening, we are discussing the topic of deconstructing faith. Now, for some of you, this concept is brand new. It might be that uh, the first time you heard about it was just before the service when you found out that's what I'm going to be addressing tonight. For others, it has been a journey that you have been on personally, or either it is one that is impacting somebody that you love, it's a family member, it's a friend, it's somebody that you've known for a long time within the Christian community. So our approach this evening is going to be to come at the topic with three different parts. The first thing that we are going to do this evening is I am going to reestablish some key ideas. This is gonna take us for about the first five minutes and we're going to work through, once again, some of the pieces that we set up on the first night to remind everybody of what the goals are, why we're doing what we're doing, how to develop a biblical worldview, all of those pieces. Then I am going to explain the idea of deconstructing faith. We're going to talk about where it came from. We're going to talk about what it means. We're going to see its different uh, nuances. We're going to see how it is impacting the church today. That's going to be the bulk of our time tonight. That'll be about 30 minutes or so. And at the very end, we're going to come back and work through the idea of deconstructing faith from a biblical perspective. I want you to see what God says in his word because what his word says should shape our response to a topic like this. So we got a lot to cover tonight, so we're going to go at it again in prayer. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we need you to walk us through this topic tonight. God, we will be grateful for what you do this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So what are the key ideas that we need to reestablish for this evening? One of the first of those is a definition that I gave this last week or this last time. It was by Mike Evans, and that is, he who defines the terms controls the debate. We are going to have to define terms tonight. We have to understand the meanings. As you will see this evening in this particular topic, there are secular academic meanings, there are cultural meanings, there are at least four different meanings within the church. We have to take our time to do that, otherwise we may very well find that we're in a position of supporting something that might be anti-God, anti-gospel, or anti-biblical. We have five primary goals on these evenings. Our first goal is to inform believers. I'm glad that you're here tonight, and praise God for the crowd that came back on Sunday night. I'm excited about that. A part of our desire is to inform you so that you know the challenges that are facing your family members and facing your coworkers and facing your children. Uh, we want to inform you about this. We also want to foster a biblical worldview. If we get to the end of these nights and we walk away not thinking more biblically and not living more biblically, then we've missed a part of the goal. It is to develop and to foster a biblical worldview. Another piece is that we want to show the beauty and the relevance of the gospel in everything. Everything comes back to this gospel emphasis. 
A, a fourth piece is we want to prayerfully seek to understand God's heart. It's important that believers know God's heart, God's will, God's desire, God's word. We need to understand that when it comes to the issues that we're facing within culture. And then number five, we want to encourage believers to act in love. Lord willing, by the time we're done, you will be more loving with the people around you. Uh, one of the things that I shared on our first night is the further we get into these conversations, the more we will see it's not nearly as cut and dry as sometimes what it seems. There are sound bites that we get in culture and on social media. And most of the time, the sound bites are inflammatory to do nothing other than to get you mad at somebody else. And Lord willing, by the time we're done tonight, you're going to understand that there are people who are wrestling through deep parts of their faith and it's because of things that have happened along the journey for them. It's not something that they walked into saying, I am now going to doubt God and doubt his word. A lot of times it's the fact they have seen so much and they have experienced so much that they're battling through things right now they don't know how to handle. We need to be able to address those things within the church. So I want to encourage you also to be respectful when talking to people about this topic and others disagreement is no reason for disrespect. We are to love people and also speak what is edifying. So we got a couple of basic definitions. Uh, one of those is worldview. Worldview is how you see the world. It, it is the system of beliefs and values that frame out our understanding of the world and what it looks like to live in it. So a biblical worldview is seeing the world from God's perspective as revealed in Scripture, and that is important. We want to see what God's perspective is, and the way we find his perspective is it is right here within his word. So developing a biblical worldview means that we are going to hold a system of beliefs and values that aligns with the word of God. Something that I shared this last week, or this last time, is there are eight primary categories of worldview. There's, there's more, but these are the primary categories, and that is these are the pieces that come together in order to shape a person's worldview. That is creation and environment, religion and spirituality, education and development, relationships and experience, culture and institutions, science and technology, economics and vocation, as well as community and government. It is a combination of those ideas coming together that helps shape the way people look at the world that is around them. There's two primary reasons why Christians believe or act in opposition to Scripture. First of those was ignorance. That is, we don't know what Scripture says. And the second of those is disobedience. We reject what Scripture says. If we know what the Bible says and we choose to align ourselves with something that is in opposition to that, that is not only unwise, that is sinful. There is always pain that comes when we hold on to the very things that God hates. So what were the basic steps of developing a biblical worldview? Here they are very quickly, and this part will be done. Actively pursue an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Everything flows out of this relationship with God. If you are not actively pursuing an intimate relationship with God, you will not develop a biblical worldview the way God desires for it to happen. The second there is study scripture contextually and completely as it relates to that topic. 
Third is adopt God's perspective as your perspective. Number four, if anything seems to contradict God's perspective, give him the benefit of the doubt, trust him, and then wait for God to bring clarity in time. God will clarify his will, his word through time. Number five, intentionally associate with people and learn from those who are on the same path. That means be careful about the books you read, about the blogs you read, about the podcast you listen to, about the church that you're a part of, about the group that you hang around. Be with people who are on the same path saying, we too want to develop a biblical worldview. And here's number six. Repeat that same process for the rest of your life. If you continue to do that over and over and over, a biblical worldview is developed in your life. Now, let's get into part number two. I want to explain deconstructing faith. Uh, this is going to be the lion's share of this evening's time. And I am going to ask from the very beginning, if you would please extend grace to me as I try to unpack a very difficult concept. Also, remember, I am not trying to address every facet of deconstructing faith. I am not going to be able to answer every question as it relates to deconstructing faith. My goal for this evening is to help provide a framework of understanding for you to see this topic from God's perspective as it is revealed through his word. If we can do that much tonight, you have a framework, a foundation on which you can build from and learn from and continue to grow in. So here is the basic idea behind deconstruction. The word deconstruction has become a buzzword within Christian as well as within secular community, but it has a dramatically different meaning depending upon its context. Remember first our statement by Mike Evans, he who defines the terms controls the debate. There are going to be multiple ways that this idea, deconstruction, is being defined. And you have to know the context in order to know what it is that that person is talking about. Now, there is no single definition for deconstruction because it has different meanings depending upon the different context. There's a technical meaning that is used within academic circles. There are secular and cultural meanings. If you talk to somebody who is not a Christian and they talk about deconstruction, they very likely have a different view of this than even the academics would. And then there's at least four different meanings that are used within a Christian context when talking to former or current evangelicals. So I want to start in the academic side because that is ground zero for the term of deconstruction. So in the 1960s, there was a French philosopher by the name of Jacques Derrida, who he advocated for a postmodern philosophy of language and its relationship to the idea of meaning. He called it deconstruction. Now, it was such a loosely held philosophy that even Derrida himself refused to define it. So Derrida's fundamental assumption, and this is going to sound confusing, but I promise it's not nearly as confusing. His fundamental assumption is that humans developed the capacity to impose psychological constructs of meaning upon their world as a coping mechanism. In other words, he says as a part of biological evolution, they created meaning when there really was no meaning. He said it was a part of how they coped with life. 
when they faced challenges, when they faced problems, when they faced death unexpectedly, when they faced disease that they could not control, they created meaning where there was actually no meaning to begin with. So what Derrida would say is there is no meaning in life that comes from God. He would say there is no absolute truth. What he would say is that any type of ancient writing that you look at, whether it's the Bible or whether or not it's some other type of religious book, whatever those ancient writings would be, the people were simply giving their idea of what was true based on that moment of time, based upon their cultural, political, religious, environmental, and experiential influences. So in order to understand a person's ancient writings, you had to understand the writers, and that was a part of understanding what shaped their views. That idea is also considered a form of literary criticism. Now let me go one step further, because once you understand that, we can now begin to see how this is impacting Christianity. According to Derrida, since meaning in life was created by people, and not by God. He claimed to be fully human. You had to come out from underneath the false narrative that had been placed on your life. You had to deconstruct. You had to take off the imposed beliefs or meanings that have been given to you from the past, whatever those might be, in order to embrace your humanity and find meaning for yourself. So in the book, Is There Meaning in the Text? Kevin Van Hooser wrote, and I quote, and this quote is amazing to help you understand what this concept is about. He said, and I quote, the motive behind Derrida's strategy of undoing or deconstruction stems from his alarm over illegitimate appeals to authority and exercises of power. The belief that one has reached a single correct meaning or God or truth provides a wonderful excuse for damning those who disagree as either being fools or heretics. Neither priests who supposedly speak for God nor philosophers who supposedly speak for reason should be trusted. Their claim to speak from a privileged position is a bluff that must be called or better deconstructed, end of quote. That statement is key for how deconstruction is happening within our culture. Over the decades, deconstruction has become a rally cry for those to critically question traditional ways of thinking and refusing to recognize authorities, especially those who are said to speak from privileged positions of authority within the church and talk about truth. Now let's pause here for a moment. Can you already from the very beginning of this see connections between deconstruction and secular humanism, critical race theory, intersectionality, Marxist ideology, and other forms of, quote, woke ideas that are now running through the schools, running through the universities, and being supported by our government institutions. There are pieces within this idea of deconstruction that are 
have almost tentacles that connect with multiple other cultural things that our country is facing right now. These pieces run together in packs. So how is deconstruction impacting Christianity? Well, to understand that, you have to understand the basic claims of Christianity. So for example, Christianity teaches that the Bible is a divinely inspired ancient writing. Well, Derrida encourages people to challenge the meaning found in any ancient writings. Christianity teaches that the Bible is God's word. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It is infallible. And it shows people the ultimate meaning in life. And Derrida says there is no absolute truth. Meaning does not come from God. Rather, it was a coping mechanism put in by people. We also find that he would say there's no absolute truth. Derrida teaches that in order for a person to be fully human, to be fully who they are, they need to take off the constructs of meaning that have been placed on them, and they need to find meaning for themselves. Is that not the exact same ancient strategy that Satan used in the garden? It's the same thing. To be fully alive, you have to take off the imposed constructs that God has placed on you. He's the one holding you back from you being fully you and reaching your full potential. If you want to understand things, if you want to see meaning, if you want to experience purpose, you have to break free of those constructs in order to determine it for yourself. It is the same ancient lie that has now been repackaged for another generation. Another piece that impacts Christianity in this is the idea that anybody who claims to have arrived at a single meaning or an understanding of God or a view of truth must be called out and rejected. Derrida would say that any pastor, any evangelist, any Bible teacher must be rejected because they are, quote, speaking about truth from a privileged position within the institution of the church. There is no doubt that deconstruction is making a massive impact in the Christian community. So here's my question for you. Why would Christians ever adopt a word, a word that comes from secular godless, anti-biblical philosophies. Why would Christians ever adopt that word in order to describe believers' struggle with faith, with the church, or with certain teachings of the church? In order to understand that, we need to see how it's currently being used within the Christian community. So there's at least four primary ways that Christians are using the term deconstruction. The first of those is deconstructing doctrines. Uh, this is the idea that deconstruction is some people are trying to pull away from the historic doctrines of the Christian faith and saying that they must be adapted or they must be altered in order to fit what is happening within culture. You see this happen a lot when it comes to people trying to dismantle biblical theology as it relates to homosexuality, as it relates to marriage, as it relates to love, as it relates to justice, as it relates to the gospel. In other words, when orthodox Christian doctrine 
is not in alignment with somebody's preference are not in alignment with the demands of culture. What they are basically saying is you need to adjust what the Bible is saying in order to fit what the culture is facing. That is the idea of destructing or deconstructing doctrines. So in his book, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, Jamin Hoopner writes, and I quote, Deconstruction simply refers to the process of questioning one's own beliefs that were once considered unquestionable. Due to new experiences, reading widely, engaging in conversations with the other, and the other would be people who are not of the faith, and interacting in a world that is now more connected and exposed to religious diversity than ever before. This position of deconstructing doctrines is the position that many former evangelicals have now taken who are identifying themselves as progressive Christians. There's a second way that this idea is seen within the church, and that is deconstructing Christianity. By the way, when you deconstruct doctrine, it is not long before you deconstruct Christianity. It's not long before you walk away from the faith itself. So some people who formerly professed an evangelical faith use deconstruction to describe their departure from Christianity altogether. This crowd uses the term deconstruction as well as the term deconversion synonymously. Uh, FYI, deconstruction is a process, and deconversion or walking away from the faith or apostasy is often a result that ends on the other side of that process, but it's two different things. If you're wondering if this is that big of a deal, it's a whole lot bigger of a deal than what many people think. Just before coming into the service, I just wrote down some names of people that are recognized names within the Christian community from Joshua Harris, uh, Dave Gass, Paul Maxwell, who was one of the writers of Desiring God, Rob Bell from Mars Hill, uh, DC Talks, Kevin Max, uh, Hawk Nelsons, John Steingard, those and many others would consider themselves to be in the second category. They have deconstructed Christianity. They would claim what their understanding of what it means to be a Christian, they are no longer Christians. That is a second way this term is used. A third way is deconstructing negative influences to protect historic Christianity. Now, there is a small group of evangelicals who use deconstruction in this way, and they would say it is their attempt to protect historic Christianity and its practices from negative cultural influences. In the final episode of the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, Paul Tripp says, and I quote, we should all be deconstructing our faith. We better do some deconstructing or we're going to find ourselves again and again in these sad places, end of quote. Now, the full quote that Paul Tripp gives is very clear that he is not advocating a rejection of Orthodox Christian doctrine. He is not advocating or saying that we should reject godly leaders who have been placed by God and established through the New Testament. What he is saying is we should reject any negative cultural influences that may be distorting and redefining the faith in an unbiblical and a harmful way. And in that case, I would say yes. But I'm about to give you my caution in just a moment as to why I think the word deconstruction should not be used in the process at all. And here's number four. 
deconstructing non-Christian beliefs to discover historic Christianity. This has also been referred to as a crisis of faith. A great example of somebody who would fit this final category would be Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer, back in 1951, he moved his family to Sweden or Switzerland in order to launch a new mission. He found himself in the middle of a spiritual crisis. As Schaeffer contrasted the views that are taught in the New Testament about truth and love, and he contrasted it with his background and the community of faith that he had been a part of that was very angry and very suspicious and very separatistic, he said that the two were so far apart that his quote was, he was torn to pieces by the lack of reality between the two. He began to question Christianity altogether. He questioned whether or not he was truly a believer. And for months, he describes a process of dismantling his belief system and taking off all of the pieces and only going back and reassembling what he could find in the Word of God apart from what came through the traditions of the church and the traditions of culture. Now, on the other side of that, Schaefer emerged with greater confidence in the core teachings of Christianity and with a deep conviction that Christian truth and Christian love are inseparable. Now, if you're wondering what is the difference maybe between point three and point four, it comes back to the idea of crisis of faith. The person in point number three did not struggle with a crisis of faith. They were bothered that cultural issues were interfering with historic Christianity. The person in point number four had a crisis of faith because when they read the Bible and they compared it with what they had experienced in their personal life growing up, they said the two are so radically different. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if God is real. I don't know if the gospel is true. They went through a full crisis of faith. Now, broadly defined, the first two usages within the Christian community would be considered negative. The final two ways that is used has been considered to be positive. But here's my concern with the church using the term deconstruction at all. There is no good reason to use a term that is confusing and secular and potentially harmful to describe any part of a redemptive realignment of your life with truth. There's just not a reason for it. In fact, even in points three and four, a Christian could just as easily say something like this. I'm learning to separate cultural Christianity from biblical Christianity. They could say, I'm pursuing Jesus through the word and through prayer, and I'm asking him to show me where my faith and where my practice are not in alignment with what he desires. Or they could say, I'm rediscovering what it means to be faithful as a Christian without all the cultural baggage. And that's saying the same basic thing. Or they could say, I'm learning to release man-made religion and embrace the fullness of God's design as it is revealed through the word. What I'm saying there is there's so many other ways of sharing the same basic idea without using the term deconstruction. It's not needed. It's confusing. Now, think about it like this. Because of all of the different meanings and nuances that are involved in this, let's say a believer were to simply say, I am deconstructing my faith. 
and they have in their idea what they mean by that. But they're in a group with people, and maybe there's somebody who is younger in their faith, and they don't understand the term, and they don't understand the nuances, and all they heard is there is a respected believer in this group who's saying they're deconstructing their faith, and it might give that person permission to say, I can remove the parts of theology that do not align with my beliefs and those that do not align with cultural ideas. It's just not helpful. We have to be careful about the words that we use. This is one of my issues that comes to Christian counseling all the time. And by the way, I think I can speak on this because I got a degree in Christian counseling. But here's one of my concerns that comes up. Whenever Christians start defining diagnosis outside of what's clearly in the word of God, you're setting yourself up in a position that cannot be substantiated by Scripture. That diagnoses change constantly. The word of God does not change. So many times we will give somebody a, a different diagnosis. We, we call them a different word. We, we say things because that's what culture is saying. But then you can't find it in scripture. My thing is those things in culture are going to change. We need to find it in the word and stick with what the word of God says. So my question now is, How in the world did we get to this point? What are the things that are driving tens of thousands of people out of churches that are causing people to question their faith, causing people to go back and say, are these doctrines even real? Why are Christians dismantling former belief systems? Well, I'm going to share a number of pieces that are involved. And let me just say from the very beginning, there could be a whole lot more than what I'm going to share. But what I'm trying to share are some big ones that encapsulate a lot of big categories. I'll also say each of these are standalone statements. Uh, It's not that each of these is necessarily in order to describe the whole reason why the church is where it is or why people are wrestling as they are, but rather the different pieces come together to help people understand the problem that we're currently facing. So here's the first of those. Christians are rarely trained in apologetics, critical thinking skills, and how to work through doubts and hard questions. This is a problem that we're facing rarely trained in apologetics. Apologetics is a defense of the faith. Apologetics is helping people know why they believe what they believe and the ability to articulate what they believe. When Christians are confronted with questions about their faith and when Christians are in college campuses and they're confronted about the differences between biblical teachings and what the world is espousing and they don't know how to answer those things, here's what happens. That time where they don't know that lack of understanding it creates this pocket that the enemy comes back and exploits when people don't know what to do in the moment they freeze up they don't say something they begin to cower instead of come back out and say this is what truth says another one of the issues there is a lot of times a lack of knowledge and understanding creates this void within the community of faith itself. So think of it like this. When you have somebody who, let's just say, they've gone through some stuff and they're wrestling through 
the claims of Christ, or maybe they have experienced something in life that is so challenging, they don't know how to process it. Many times, believers are afraid of asking their questions in Christian community because they don't want to be judged and they don't want to get ostracized for asking what nobody else wants to ask. You know as well as I do, there's some questions that when you bring them up in a small group, it's like you just dropped a lead balloon in that place. It, it doesn't go over well. A lot of times people don't want to hear that another believer is wrestling with anything about their faith. It's almost like if you wrestle, then, then maybe you just don't have enough deep faith. I think sometimes it's just the opposite of that. I think sometimes we don't wrestle because we're not thinking about what Jesus said. If you think about the claims of Christ, there's going to be times you're like, God, I don't know what that looks like right now in my life, but I'm going to trust you anyway with this. So here's another one of the issues there. Many Christians have become weary or disillusioned with the version of Christianity that they've encountered that is not historically biblical in orthodoxy or orthopraxy. That is correct belief or correct behavior. For the person that was taught works-based righteousness and legalism and trying to live up to a standard that they will never be able to reach, they eventually get weary in the process and they walk away. For the person who has seen abuses in the church, in hypocrisy in the church, in unforgiveness in the church, in judgmentalism in the church, and a squandering of resources by the church, and gossip and slander and backbiting all in the church, they become disillusioned with the church. When people see how many, or maybe I should say when they see how few Christians really want to live the teachings of Christ. How few Christians are really concerned about a lost world that's around them, they get upset, and rightfully so. Sin and distraction within the church has led to disillusionment and discouragement, and for some, a deconstruction of the faith. Eventually, here's what happens. People get so fed up with the games and the rituals and the activity that is apart from the power of God, that they just say, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. That's one of the problems. Here's a third issue. There's a lack of discipleship in the church and an emphasis on attractional services that create consumer-minded Christians. All too often, people are coming to church to be entertained and they're not being discipled when they get there. Christians are encouraged many times through attractional models to come and sit as opposed to die to self and follow Jesus. Mature disciples cannot exist on a diet of three steps to a blessing and four ways to be happy and how to live your best life right now. Mature disciples need a steady diet of the gospel that saves and sanctifies. Mature disciples need to be taught about the necessity of prayer and the necessity of continual repentance and the necessity of serving others. Mature disciples are those who are hearing and heeding Jesus' call to die to self and to follow him. Listen, when the focus is wrong in the church... The product is going to be off in the church. 
We cannot attract people in the front door with it's all about you and then get upset when they don't understand us saying it's all about Jesus. What it takes to catch them is going to be what it takes to keep them. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment and make some Christian parents mad. I predicted that everybody will be mad at least once per evening. For some of you, now is your time. When Christian parents choose a church based on who has the fun youth group, that is foolish at best or rejection of your responsibilities as a Christian parent at worst. There is nothing wrong with your students having fun, but that is not the determining factor in whether or not it's the church you need to have your family to be a part of. You should choose a church based on how closely they align with God's word and with the mission that has been set out by Jesus. We need to choose a church based on whether or not the church is going to love you enough to preach God's word in a contextually accurate way, whether it makes you happy or not. You need to choose a church that is going to declare the gospel again and again and again. Choose a church that is going to care enough about you and your family that they're going to help your students know Jesus and walk with Jesus and follow Jesus and share Jesus with others. Because one day the question is not going to be, did little Johnny have fun at youth group? It's going to be, does little Johnny know Jesus? And you're not going to care whether or not they were entertained to death on a Wednesday night. You're going to want to make sure that they were taught about the gospel and that they know Jesus personally and that one day down the road they step out into life hotly pursuing Christ and leading a family and engaging culture and acting like somebody who has been awakened by the power of God. So since you're already there, we're going to get people more mad. One of the things I keep hearing from youth pastors over and over again is concerning for me. When I begin to talk about these things, here's what they're saying. We can't address that in student ministry. Do you know why they're saying that? Because when they try to address the hard topics that students are facing every day in school... The parents are coming back and saying, we don't want our kids to learn that. God help you. Listen, one day down the road when you get mad because you had your kids involved in a student ministry and you say they weren't discipled, many times it's because the Christian parents are getting in the way of the discipling. If you can't talk about hard things from a biblical perspective in church, where do you think they're going to learn about it? We're going to stop there before the emails pile up more than I can handle next week. Here's number four. Another issue is unbelievers who claim to be Christians are revealing by their actions that they were never Christians. Cultural Christianity may have been one of the greatest threats to biblical Christianity that we've faced. If you're not familiar with what cultural Christianity is, 
Let me just say upwards of, say, 25 years ago, and especially right here in the South, going to church was the respectable thing to do. That's where your neighbors were going to be. That's where your banker was going to be. That's where your business contacts were going to be. There was a lot in culture that was saying, you need to go. But here's what happened. Cultural Christianity created a mindset that was neither Christian nor biblical. It was a form of godliness that denied the power thereof. Someone could loosely align with Christian morals while holding fast to the desires of the flesh. Many of those who were, quote, defecting from the faith today were never actually a part of the faith. Scripture says they went out from us because they were not of us. They were church members, not necessarily Christians. Now, while cultural Christianity has been declining for decades, there was a shift that happened a couple of years ago that put a couple of the final nails in the coffin. It was COVID. Here's what I mean by that. For so long, everything in culture was saying, if you're going to be respectful and a good person, you need to be in church. And then COVID came, and everything in culture said, do not go, do not gather, do not participate, because if you do, you are not being a loving person. So here's what happened with that. The result was many of those who were cultural Christians stopped coming, and they simply realigned with who they were the entire time. They were unbelievers. Did you know to this day, the vast majority of churches are seeing 25 to 30% fewer in attendance on a Sunday than what they were seeing prior to COVID? A lot of that was a shift in cultural Christianity. Here's number five. Another issue has been the inconsistent lives of Christian parents who profess Christ, but they live like functional atheists. Over 80% of kids who grow up in the church, they're involved in the church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, youth group, student camps. Over 80% will stop attending church after they leave high school. When George Barnes surveyed teenagers who were leaving the church, the number one reason that was given is God has never been real to my parents. They did not say my parents did not believe in God. They said God has never been real to my parents. In other words, these kids grew up in homes with parents who professed one thing and they lived something else. They claimed that God was important, but they lived as though God did not exist. They were functional atheists. Their belief in God did not impact their schedule, their finances, their attitudes, how they treated people, what they said, or how they lived. And after 18, 20, 22 years of watching that pattern every day, day in and day out, it left an impression upon these students. And the impression was, God may be real, but he is not real to my parents and he is not real to me. And here's number six. Part of the issue is called cynical deconstruction. It is a cultural movement encouraging people to abandon churches and their childhood faith. The reason I bring this up is because this is a movement that rails against institutions, traditions, authority, exclusivity claims, and biblical morals. It could very easily be that there is someone who had a wonderful Christian upbringing, had a wonderful Christian family. They were part of a wonderful New Testament church. 
And they still find themselves getting swept up by a mob mentality of cynical deconstruction. One day, some of those might wake up and realize that they got sucked up into something that was never even their fight. They got caught up into something in the moment because that's where the crowd was going, but that wasn't their issue. So all of that now leads into this final section, part three. How should we respond to deconstructing Christians? Well, let me say in short, we respond the way biblically faithful believers have responded for 2,000 years. You will notice that the majority of the issues that have been mentioned tonight are not new. For 2,000 years, there have been believers who have experienced a crisis of faith. For 2,000 years, there have been believers who have faced harmful and sinful influences within culture. For 2,000 years, there have been individuals who have been hurt within the church. For 2,000 years, there have been people who have questioned traditional teachings and values. For 2,000 years, some have departed from the faith as an act of apostasy. Now, now let me say, none of that justifies where we are right now. I, I'm not saying, since it's always happened, there's really no big issue. What I'm saying is, for 2,000 years, these types of things have gone on, and the Word of God still addresses every single one of them. Part of our thing is we need to understand what the bigger picture is because by understanding the bigger picture, we can see some of the issues that are feeding into the problems. And once we see the issues feeding into the problems, we can look at God's word and say, what does scripture have to say about those issues to help us impact the problems that we're currently facing right now? So real fast, let me package up what we just walked through a second ago. Some of the primary issues that are impacting this idea of people deconstructing their faith is a lack of training in apologetics, critical thinking skills, and how to work through hard questions. Part of it is problems and abuses and sin that's happening in the church where correct beliefs and correct correct practices have been obscured along the way. Uh, part of it is a chronic lack of discipleship that has occurred in a, this me-centered idea of ministry. Uh, a part is cultural Christianity that is now being separated from historic Christianity. Part of it is parents who've been living an inconsistent life before their kids. Uh, a part of it is people who are getting swept up in a mob mentality that is outside the church. But the issue is they are unable to discern the voice of God from the voice of culture. So how do you address those things? How do we respond as believers? Remember a part of this showing the beauty and the relevance of the gospel, prayerfully seeking to understand God's heart, encouraging believers to act in love. If we walk away from this point attacking someone who is struggling with their faith, you've missed what I've been talking about tonight. What I want you to hear is there are some people who because of what they have walked through, they are 
facing a disorienting, discouraging, disillusioning moment where they're just trying to keep their head above water. And what they don't need is some Christian saying, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't have struggled with that. Let me just say, we could probably point the finger back and say, if the body of Christ were acting like the body of Christ, we probably wouldn't be dealing with this to begin with. There are things that we have to be careful about how we walk people through it. We have to love people back to the focus and the plan and the objectives that have been set by Scripture. So what is a biblical response? I got the first word for you. Repentance. When sin is present, repentance is necessary. Whether you are talking about this on an individual level or whether or not we're talking about this on a corporate church level, there are areas where people have placed preference over Scripture, personalities over the mission, comfort over God's call. They followed the flesh instead of following the Spirit. These actions have led to abuse and confusion and disillusionment and sin of every kind within the church. The only proper response when confronted with sin is immediate repentance. That is the only proper response. When we look and see the problems that we're facing here, and we see that discipleship has all been lost when we see that there's abuses that have happened, that there have been people who have said and done things that are hurtful to other believers, that should immediately drive us to a place of saying, God, if that's me, if you bring that to mind, Lord, may I repent of that immediately, right now. We find 1 John 1.9 is so clear if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance is taught, Revelation, or Romans 2, Acts 3, Luke 13, Proverbs 28, Revelation 2. You name it, it's taught throughout Scripture. I want to encourage you, personally repent if there's any area where your actions have led to a crisis of faith or harm to another believer. If you have gossiped, if you have slandered, if you have abused, if you have disrespected, if you have acted in a way that is unwise and against the standard of biblical community, I cannot encourage you enough. Repent. Confess it to God. Forsake it before God. Thank him for the forgiveness we have in Christ. And when possible, do everything you can in order to make it right with those that you have hurt. Starts in repentance. A second piece is realignment. Much of the problem that is attributed to the church is about the church not being the church. There needs to be a missional realignment with the priorities of God. We need to realign with his mission to make disciples of the nations 
who know Christ and make him known, Matthew 28. We need to realign to the biblical priorities of the church being there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, of being known for our love for one another. John chapter 13, and being a place that we can live out the teachings of Christ in covenant community with other believers, Acts chapter 2. There needs to be a realignment of our beliefs and practices according to what we find in Scripture. There's a third piece, that is restoration. As much as possible, we should seek to restore struggling believers to the beauty of the gospel and what his desire is for those living in covenant community. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. James 5, 19 through 20, it speaks of bringing back the one who was wandering away from truth. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, it speaks of rebuking those who persist in sin. So let me show why I brought both of those up. There are some who they're wandering from truth because they don't know what they don't know. There are some who are wandering from truth because they know truth. They're just choosing to reject it. And what he says in the word is you go back to that individual, rebuke that person so that they do not continue in a path of sin. Part of that is biblical accountability. I, I, I want to be clear, everyone at some point in their Christian life, is going to struggle with questions and doubts. It's going to come. If it's not happened to you, it's going to come. And here's the reason we need to act in grace to people. There are some people who, when those struggles came in their life, they were so far out on the fringe of Christianity that all it took was the enemy giving one push, and they find themselves in a place of not knowing heads from tails and they're discouraged and they're overwhelmed they don't even know what to do we need to love that person back in truth there's other people who whenever they face those challenges there was somebody that they knew who saw the struggle and was willing to walk with them and pray with them and be with them through the process so they struggled in community not outside community Praise God for the people who see the person who's struggling around them. We need to have grace with people. Love them back to truth. Listen as they share their stories. A another piece on that is don't go into fix-it mode. And don't, don't just jump out and say, ah, I, I know exactly what you need. Sometimes you just need to sit and listen for a while. Sometimes you need to let the person share what happened and then Ask the Spirit of God, God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to know what to say and when to say it, how it needs to be said. Another one here is revival. Pray for Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-transforming revival. Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Isaiah 57, 15, it says, God will revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. We need a refreshing touch from God in the church. When revival happens, 
it addresses the issues we've talked about. When revival happens, sin is addressed. Apathy is addressed. Prayerlessness is addressed. The authority of Scripture is addressed. The relevance of the gospel is addressed. All of those things are addressed. Revival helps realign God's people with God's word and God's ways and God's way of doing things. Revival purifies the bride and brings an urgency back to the mission itself. When God's people get right with him, it's amazing how many these problems are taken care of. And here's the final piece, re-engagement. Many of the problems that we are seeing are the result of individual Christians and churches getting away from the mission of Christ to make disciples of the nations. We cannot focus on the world's pleasures and values and treasures and at the same time be about the mission of Christ. We're called to make disciples. We are called to intimacy with God. When we are living out of the overflow of intimacy with God, and when churches are engaged in making disciples and our hands are locked onto the gospel plow, we don't have time to look back and dilly-dally around with foolish things. We have to go forward with what it is that Christ has before us. We have a world who needs to know about Jesus. We have a message that saves souls, redeems lives, brings hope, gives people an opportunity for a future. I recognize that there's probably 50 different things at least that I could add onto that list of what needs to happen now. And I process back and forth, do I address things on an individual level or do I address them on a corporate level? And the reason I left it with these five is because if these five are not done, none of the rest are going to matter. If these five are addressed, you can add to these and get further refinement. But if these are missing, we're not going to see this problem changed. We've got a challenge before us. Part of the challenge is, will the church be the church? Will we live in intimate relationship with God and make disciples? Or will we be okay with just having nice services on Sunday? Nice services do not change the world. There's a lot of nice services that people have been fleeing from in droves. People need a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. And they need believers around them who are going to love them and walk with them and help them to become all that God created them to be. My prayer is that that's what Sherwood will be for not only this generation, but for generations to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask tonight that you would help us to be those who are as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Help us, Lord, to know where the lines are between walking with people through hard times. When, when do we go and say, let me just listen 
And Lord, when do we go through and say, I need to caution and warn you that if you continue this path, it's not going to lead to good things on the other side. God, we we need your spirit to help us with that. Lord, I pray that we don't walk away from this service in a spirit of judgmentalism. I pray that we walk away from this service maybe more brokenhearted than what we were when we walked in, recognizing that for things to be different 10 years from now, we need to change some things immediately. So, Lord, may you live your life, your best, through us. And, God, may we submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen.